Um, yeah, cool to be here um, tonight to share with you guys. Um, I actually was here yesterday sharing with Capital Church, um, Seventh-day Adventist Church, who meets here on a Saturday, um, which was really cool. And um, man, they are like a really cool crew, eh? They are, um, I mean, you know, you shouldn't go there. This is good. But um, <laughs> but um, they're a really, really awesome church. But um, yeah, I was just reflecting to them um, yesterday that um, the, the thing that's become really clear to me over the last couple of years is that John 1, 5, for the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not put it out. For the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not put it out. Um, and I just felt to share before I get into it tonight that for those here tonight um, in spaces of um, darkness and spaces of struggle and spaces of pain, um, that the light truly does shine in the darkness and it has not been put out. Um, and as someone who has been to the darkness a lot over the last couple of years, and there are other people who have walked, walked that journey around here, the light truly does shine in the darkness, and the darkness has not put it out. Um, and I, I just want to speak that over people here tonight, because I think um, we live in like a super dark time. Um, we live in a time where we don't know if we're going to have much of a planet in 100 years. Um, our political and social climate is totally divided. Um, our, our church is falling apart. Um, there is like, not this one, but you know, <laughs> um, there's, there's a heck of a lot to think about at the moment. And it is, can be like a super exhausting and anxious time. Um, and um, one of the things we so desperately need right now is hope. Um, we need hope, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not put it out. Um, and there is a way, if you find yourself today in the very darkest place of your life, there is a way that God's light can come into that and bring hope and bring restoration and redeem the things that you thought were unredeemable. Um, there's a great quote I love by the theologian N.T. Wright, who says, for those standing at the cross on the day Jesus died, nobody thought it was a beginning. Everybody thought it was an ending. You know, we get to look at the cross now and we know what happened in the end when we go, yeah, it all works out. But for us on our darkest day, we don't believe that, right? Um, and the people who watched Jesus going to the cross saw their friend, saw their brother, their Lord, their revolutionary dying on the cross. They thought it was all over. Um, and even through the most horrific of things, through, through torture on a Roman death instrument, through the darkest moment in human history, um, redemption and resurrection were bought. Um, and that is essentially what our New Testament says. The gospel is this, is that because Christ has defeated death, nothing cannot be defeated. Um, and so wherever you find yourself today, if it feels like an ending, um, I would just say to you that Christ promises people beginnings from the midst of the endings. So that's the sermon for today. No, um, <laughs> um, but I um, want to begin with that. Um, today, I want to talk about um, worship as defiance. Um, worship as defiance. And um, for those of you online, um, I have just dropped the slides for this talk uh, on the Facebook page. So you can find those there if you need them. Um, and so we're going to spend some time in the book of Revelation. Who here has read the book of Revelation? Oh, here we go. Check this out. Who, who here has read the book of Revelation? Who's tried to read the book of Revelation? Who is like, you're right. Yeah, yeah. Who is like, just like, who is confused as, confused as, um, as for, about the book of Revelation? Anyone? Like, yeah, I think most of us have, um, have put that one away. Um, so I put this image up here because this is just like amazing. Like this is like Marvel meets the book of Revelation, eh? Like look at this flipping tentacle monster, eh? He's like, you know, and then you've got like, it kind of looks like you've got 
the bourgeoisie and like the peasants all like fighting each other. I don't even know if this is revelation or if this is just like a Marvel panel or something like that, but it's kind of the vibe I think when we think about um, revelation. Um, and the book of revelation was written by the apostle John, um, who was one of the only ones who wasn't martyred. Instead, he was sent to a prison island called Patmos in the Mediterranean. Um, he um, basically, we think, chilled out there till he died. But while he was there, he had this vision. And this vision was of God's kingdom finally coming in its fullness and so he pins this vision the last book of the scriptures um and it's just batshit crazy eh? it's just like it's out of control um and um and like the thing is a friend of mine who's um uh luke painter who's always you know dressed in black and quite a bogan he's like revelation is so metal like it's just so metal um like just to give you a bit of a preview of revelation um so revelation 12 <laughs> has this moment of a woman giving birth while a dragon crouches underneath her ready to eat her offspring like how full-on is that hey <laughs> super full on um there's another beast that comes along in revelation 13 um and then like in revelation 17 this beast and a prostitute just like go to town like just like in the middle of this prophetic book like it's so so full on um and the prostitute is drunk um but she's not drunk on wine she's drunk on the blood of dead christians <laughs> How full on is this book? Hey, it's such a full on book. Like, like people are legitimately awkward right now. I'm just telling you what's in the Bible, guys. Like, this is our book. We got to get to grips with this. This is real stuff. I'm not making it up. I'm actually, I'm holding back a little bit. Okay, I'm actually holding back a little bit. Um, this book. Oh yeah, and then at the end, Jesus arrives with a sword and a massive tattoo on his calf and just starts kicking ass. Hey, like this. Like this is this is like the kind of conversation you know. I don't know if you guys have seen Talladega Nights, like the conversation they have around the dinner table. It's that conversation, you know, I think my Jesus has a tattoo on his thigh and a riding a dragon and holding a sword and he's kicking ass. Like this is like the kind of thing that Revelation is. It's, it's out of control. And so I want to, for those of you who don't read this or have never read it and are like, I can't believe that's in my Bible. I almost feel ashamed to be a Christian right now. Um, I want to give you three things from the outset that I think will help you to deal with the book of Revelation. Um, and so the first of these um, is this is kind of like an Old Testament book in the New Testament. It's kind of an Old Testament book in the New Testament, which I think is confusing because what we, um, if, we if we look at the New Testament, what we have is the Gospels and we have the Epistles. And in gen generally, it's very personal and it's very grounded and it's very earthy and real world. Like it's still, there's some crazy stuff in there. Um, but actually, when we're looking at Revelation, we're kind of looking at an Old Testament style book in the New Testament. Um, it it's, has heaps of like intertextuality with um, Ezekiel and Daniel um, and Isaiah and books like that. So it's it's like big on visions, like the craziest book of the Old Testament. Um, Revelation is drawing from, from that tradition. Um, and, um, and so as you see in often some of those old books, the beasts of these, um, the books of the Old Testament of, of Daniel and Ezekiel are often symbols of empires or symbols of nations. And so we have the same sort of themes coming back. Um, the second thing um, is that um, I think sometimes when we look at something like this, our thought is that this is all looking into the future for what will happen. Um, but actually, this book is actually super more present focused um, than people know. So it actually was not speaking to us here today about when Jesus comes back. It was speaking to a real oppressed people living in a real time at that time. So it's actually written to a people. Um, and... Um, 
and because it, you see that because it was written about what was presently happening. So we have like chapters two and three, which are all letters to real churches. So it's saying to you guys at Laodicea, you guys are lukewarm. Your faith is so weak. Um, and those churches don't exist anymore, you know? So it was speaking to real people in a real time. Um, so it was about future liberation, but also about present suffering for the church at the time. Um, these guys were under the reign of a really ruthless Roman emperor, a guy called Domitian, um, who was just savage to Christians and Jews, just like full on with his torture. Um, so it's not primarily a letter to us. It's primarily a letter to suffering Christians. And then the final thing is that this is in the tradition of apocalyptic literature. And apocalyptic literature was always written to the poor and the oppressed. It was always written to the poor and the oppressed about how they would be liberated from their oppression. So I think part of the reason we've got such dodgy theology around Revelation is because a lot of it's been interpreted by, um, by white men in their 60s in the USA <laughs> who are trying to read a story written to oppressed people from their position of power and privilege and um, layering these things on it, layering, say, their experience of, I don't know, a slight, having to wear a mask or something like that as an experience of oppression, <laughs> um, and then saying, yes, we are the people of Revelation who need rescuing. But apocalyptic literature is always written to oppressed people, and so it is made for those people to understand. So for many of us in this room, actually, we are not the, we are not the, the key audience of this. We need to do like a little bit of a job to get in the head of the people who are receiving this letter um, because it's about their liberation. Um, and so with this, because the church was super persecuted at the time, um, this book is kind of written like a little bit of a code. John never says what he's actually saying because there's a real possibility that this literature could fall into the hands of the Romans or fall into the hands of people who would persecute them. So he's kind of, he's not saying it directly. And so he talks about dragons and he talks about prostitutes and he talks about drinking the blood of Christians. And he's normally talking about something else, but it's deeply encoded um, so that only the people who know the ancient stories will be able to unpack it and realize what he's actually saying. And so when we start to get our head around some of these things like this, if you're going to get into Revelation, it's really good stuff for you to just have in the back of your mind that will make it um, make you not wait for a giant dragon to come out of the clouds <laughs> um, and actually wonder what Christ might be saying to people who were suffering at the time and therefore what Christ might be saying to us now. So for all these things, why would I choose to speak from um, the book of Revelation uh, on a series on worship? Um, I want to share from Revelation 4 because it is this picture of eternal worship um, and um, defiant worship. Um, and I, I want to extract some of that because I think it says something powerful to us. And it kind of comes in these, these three movements. But first up, I'm just going to read this passage for you. Is everyone doing okay? Yeah, we're feeling okay? Good. Okay. Just find the Bible <laughs> somewhere in here. Um, cool. Okay, so this is, um, do you love the Bible app? Yeah, I guess. Um, <laughs> read the Bible app. No, thanks. <laughs> um, cool. So this is um, Revelation. How do you rate that? Eh? Like, what do you reply to that? <laughs> Not good. Sorry. <laughs> Average. Um, Game of Thrones was better. Um, all right. Um, so here we go. Revelation 4. The throne room of heaven. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, 
come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the spirit and behold a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne and he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardis stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightning, thunder and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes front and back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist, and we're created. Wild scene, eh? Really wild scene. So John sets up this um, picture of someone sitting on a throne. Just says one, doesn't quite say who, but we know who's sitting there. Um, it's Jesus. Um, is sitting on the throne, and he's surrounded by this enormous chorus of worship which includes these 24 elders and then these four beasts who are covered in eyes but still sort of look like lions and bears and different things and every time they give praise the, the 24 elders grab the crowns on their heads and throw them on the ground and they fall before God and say holy 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 Lord God almighty and they give praise to him at the time when this was written, um, the, um, the Roman uh, style of government had moved to what they called the imperial cult. Um, the imperial cult is where we get like the phrase a cult personality. Um, the imperial cult basically meant that they had decided uh, that not only was the person in charge their ruler, but that person was also a god. Um, so this really harsh guy that they had at the time, Domitian, um, he was godlike. And there was a, a, a custom, a bunch of customs around how they would actually worship Domitian um, as this kind of um, god become man. So he was worshipped as God, and he had this court of um, kind of sycophants, like these people who were like, yes, sir, three bags full, sir, who followed him around. Um, and they were all dressed in togas, um, like actually, and um, would follow him around and do whatever he needed and, and support him. And prior to Domitian, there were always 12 of these guys who would follow him around. Um, but in the time of Domitian, he increased that number to 24 who would follow him around. And so going back to part of the scripture, at once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. So you see the parallel here that um, John is saying, yeah, yeah, there's this guy on a throne um, and there are these 24 dudes doing whatever he asks, um, but the guy on this throne is not Domitian. The guy on this throne is Jesus. John here is replacing Domitian 
the leader of the empire with the leader of the kingdom, Jesus. Craig Keener says this, the picture of the throne room, including the activity of those surrounding the throne, is a parody of the imperial court and the worship in the imperial temples, a daring revelation for a banished Jewish prophet like John. So John is taking the piss here. Like he's taking the piss out of Domitian. He's going, everybody knows Domitian's sitting on his throne and he gets worshipped by these 24 guys. But I am going to give you a story where a new guy sits on the throne and another different 24 guys worship him. And he is more powerful than Domitian. He is more powerful. This worship is true worship. The imperial cult is bullshit. So he's shaping that up for us. And so what might this tell us about worship? Well, it tells us that worship is a matter of allegiance. Over and over, this, this thing happens. We see it with the triumphal entry in the Gospels, where people are asked to choose between fidelity to the empire or fidelity to the kingdom. And we see this again here in the book of Revelation. For Jesus to be on the throne, Domitian cannot be. For Jesus to be on the throne, Domitian cannot be. For the kingdom to come, the empire cannot be on the throne. Equally for us, as we come to worship, for Jesus to be on the throne, your career cannot be. For Jesus to be on the throne, your reputation cannot be. For Jesus to be on the throne, your political ideology cannot be. The things of the empire have got to go. For Christ to sit on the throne, there is only one place. There is only one seat and only one person who can sit in it. Demission must go. Christ must be put there. A few years ago, um, <clears throat> I um, took a bunch of leaders from this church to a conference in Auckland. Um, we were all quite cynical. A lot of us had come from different um, Pentecostal backgrounds um, and um, I think probably had some like skepticism about the Holy Spirit and some of the kind of more wacky elements of that. And perhaps the wackiest element of that around some of the wackiest is Bethel um, in the US. I don't know if you know these guys, but Bill Johnson and that crew. Um, we're like, this is wacky. This is too wacky for us. But I was praying one day and I saw that a conference was coming to town and I just felt God was like, you need to take your leaders to that conference. So, oh my gosh, like, really? Are we really going to this? So a crew of us, um, we organized it. We got on a plane. Um, we went there and I made a rule that we were not allowed to critique Bill Johnson or his crew. We would have half an hour each evening where we could all say one thing that annoyed us. But the rest of the day, we had to shut up. <laughs> And I said, if they tell you to put your hands in the air, you put your hands in the air. If they tell you to clap, you clap. If they tell you to give money, give money, but not too much. Um, and um, if, they, um, if they offer prayer ministry, you take it. Whatever they say, we are doing, because we're not going to believe that God actually is doing something in these people who we maybe don't understand or maybe wouldn't get along with, but we're going to submit to that thing and see what God will do. And man, it was uncomfortable. Eh? It was real uncomfortable. But what did happen over those few days is that we actually all played along, played nice. And we actually received something beautiful from the Holy Spirit in that experience. We, um, we came back here and, and it was amazing to watch over the next couple of years after that, the way that the Holy Spirit began to move in this place in the same way that the Spirit had moved in that place. It was almost like when we were willing to submit to something that we were able to receive what was good from it. And I'm not talking about here being dumb. I'm talking about what does it look like for us to dethrone our intellect or to dethrone our prejudices or to dethrone our ideologies and to put Jesus back on the throne? You know, one of the, the things Paul says is the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, 
When was the last time you felt foolish in your pursuit of Jesus? Because if you don't regularly feel foolish, if you feel like you haven't worked out, then maybe you're not following Jesus. There should be a foolishness where we have to head into places of discomfort. If you find Jesus always fits your left-wing ideology, then you're probably following a political ideology and not Jesus. Jesus should, wherever you find yourself on the political spectrum, on the spiritual spectrum, Jesus should always be making you uncomfortable. You should never sit fully at home anywhere in any of the world's categories if we're truly following Jesus. Otherwise, you've possibly put your own ideology, your own mind, your own club, your own tribe on the throne instead of Christ. And for Christ to be on the throne, demission cannot be. For Christ to be on the throne, demission cannot be. So when we come to worship, we're talking about coming here as we, we, we praise and we sing to God and saying, whatever is on the throne right now, hariatu, off you go. Get off the throne. I am remembering that the one who sits on this throne is Christ Jesus, and no one else can. So when we come to this place, whatever it is that we think defines who we are, whatever it is that gives us comfort, we say that thing, you step aside, we put Christ back on the throne again. Worship is a matter of allegiance. And my first point here tonight is worship is how we dethrone Domitian and re-enthrone Jesus. Worship is how we dethrone Domitian and re-enthrone Jesus. So the first question I want to ask you tonight is who is on the throne tonight? Because we all come in here, we enthrone all sorts of stuff all the time. You know, you know when, when 60% of your thinking is about the mortgage, you've enthroned your house. You know, when 60% of your thinking is about whether you can afford that new iPhone, you've enthroned Apple. <laughs> we all come here with things in the throne, on the throne. And tonight, Domitian needs to get off. And when we worship, we say, off you get, off you. And we say, Jesus, come. The throne is yours. He does not share authority. This is about allegiance. The second movement of this is that there are these two liturgies that the four beasts um, speak of in this passage. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar with, with liturgies, um, these are um, ways of ordering our worship and often ancient words that we use. So later on tonight in Eucharist, you'll hear us um, use words which are 1,900, 2,000 years old to declare our faith. And so they have these liturgies here. Day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And then the 24 elders, they lay their crowns before the throne and say, you're worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. Interesting thing in these two liturgies here. Um, can you take that slide off for the moment? I'm not quite there for that one, thank you. Um, the, um, the phrase, you are worthy, was what you were required to say as a new emperor came into town in a triumphal entry. So you know that scene we have of Jesus riding in on a donkey um, from Matthew of the, the Hosanna, um, he who comes in the name of the Lord. For Domitian, they would have had to have said, you are worthy, you are worthy, you are worthy, you are worthy. So these were the words reserved for the emperor. And then the other phrase, Lord and God, was the name that Domitian demanded to be addressed by that anyone who spoke of Domitian or talked to him had to call him my Lord and my God. So we kind of, these, this language is kind of normalized to us now, eh? We're like, yep, we get all of this. We've heard these before. But what John is doing here is actually co-opting the terms that were meant to be used for the praise of the emperor instead for the praise of Christ. So John is co-opting the worship liturgy of the imperial cult 
and giving it to Jesus. And like liturgy is a really powerful way. Liturgy is a really powerful, essentially the words we say over and over and over and over and over again in our lives, like they form us, eh? they shape us, they become true to us. I remember a few years ago doing a paper on theology of mental health through Otago University. And then one of the days of this paper, they were talking about the experiences of dementia that people have. And what does it look like for you to know God as you kind of lose your mind or lose your memory? And they shared this beautiful story of a woman in her 80s who was completely nonverbal. She couldn't say anything. But the one thing she could say was the Lord's Prayer. It was the one thing that she was able to say. So she would say the Lord's Prayer over and over and over again. That, that, that liturgy was so deep in her that it was deeper than her memory. Um, and that the last words she said over and over again in the last years of her life were the words that Jesus taught us to pray. Man, that's incredible, way. Eh? How many times must she have said that throughout her life for that to be the thing that was left as everything else went? I sometimes wonder what our generation is going to say at the end. I wonder what words we're going to be left with because I want to be left with those words, eh? That's, that's how I want to finish up. Um, I wonder what we might remember that well. Because the thing is, we, we all have liturgies. We all have phrases which we repeat over and over and over and over again. And some of those liturgies are in allegiance to the empire and in allegiance to Domitian. And some of those liturgies um, are in allegiance to Jesus. There's um, a guy, um, James <coughs> K.A. Smith, um, who coined this phrase, cultural liturgies. We're saying, you know, in the church, we have um, um, Jesus Christ is good news to the poor, release to the captive, recovery of sight to the blind. Um, in the world, we have liturgies, cultural liturgies of efficiency, cultural liturgies of reputation, cultural liturgies of success. You know, that, that there is an imperial cult in our time around wealth and consumerism, just like there was an imperial cult around demission. And so we have these, these cultural liturgies. We, we quote television shows. We imbibe messages from advertising. We imbibe society's expectations. Um, and these things change and they form us. So there's, there's this war going on in our hearts between liturgies that give worship to God and liturgies which distort our hearts and instead swear allegiance to the empire and to Domitian. Liturgies which worship the machine, worship consumerism, self-image, um, and a feeling of unworthiness. This guy, um, James K.A. Smith, um, who, who coined this term cultural liturgies, can you put the first quote up from him? I love this. Liturgies aim our love to different ends precisely by training our hearts through our bodies. Liturgies aim our love to different ends precisely by training our hearts through our bodies. This idea that what we say um, basically creates a magnetic north that our heart follows, that as we repeat these things over and over again, that something we do on the outside of us turns the inside of us towards God. Um, he goes a little bit further in this next quote around worship. Worship works from the top down, you might say. In worship, we don't just come to show God our devotion and give him our praise. We are called to worship because in this encounter, God remakes and molds us top down. Worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabituates our loves. Worship isn't just something we do. It is where God does something to us. Worship is the heart of discipleship because it is the gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. That's quite cool, eh? 
Has anyone, I don't know if anyone's heard that kind of definition of worship before, but sometimes I think we can think it's, it's all about the lying prostrate before God, but there is something God is doing in us at the same time as we, as we say these phrases that we want to believe are true. We say these things that we wish our hearts believed, even though sometimes they don't believe them yet. We are shaped and changed by that process that worship does something in us as much as it pleases God. I really love that. So part of the purpose of worship is that we take the words that were meant for the empire and we give them to God. Part of the purpose of worship is we take the words that were meant for the empire, meant to serve Domitian, and we give them instead to God. Instead of I long for sexual gratification, I long for belonging with God in the depths of my soul. Instead of I am what I do, we say I am who you say I am, God. I think someone wrote a song like that, actually. <laughs> Instead of I am made to work, we say I am made to worship. Um, and we say that again and again and again and again until our hearts reorientate and are aimed at God. And we change our fundamental disposition. So that first point, worship is how we dethrone Domitian and re-enthrone Jesus. But the second point, worship is where we replace cultural liturgies with liturgies that reform us into the people of God. Worship is where we replace cultural liturgies with liturgies that reform us into the people of God. You guys still with me? There's a bit here, eh? Yeah. Um, cool. Um, Lisa, that's how I'm feeling. Deva, sometimes I write things and I don't really think about how I'm writing them. And then I'm like reading and I'm like, oh, that's intense. Um, um, the third movement of this, Revelation 14, um, getting a sweet up here. Um, that's what Revelation will do to you, eh? Saucy stuff. Um, Revelation 14, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne of God. So these 24 elders who are worshiping this new one enthroned, every time the beasts sing their liturgy, they can't help for all eternity. They fall down on their face and they throw their crowns away. Whatever glory, whatever honor, whatever they've achieved, they throw it down. And they say, Jesus, it's all you. And this is like, it reminds me um, a little bit of a, a few years ago, I was um, doing this um, walk, which no one would have heard of, called the Camino de Santiago in, um, in Spain. Um, and, um, and I'm going to tell a story, which also no one has ever heard. Um, and um, I just, um, it's this beautiful pilgrimage walk, like 850k across Spain. It takes about... Um, 35 days kind of at the shortest and uh, I remember this one day just um, walking along walking up this hill and I suddenly had the sense of how much God has actually done for me just like came upon me I was like my gosh and I started to think on the cross and I started to think about what kind of love would motivate someone to do that for his kids I just began to weep, hey? I just began to like lose it as I was walking up this path. Um, and like, you know, it's just like, like really heavy tears, like falling on the ground. Um, and I'm just thinking on the cross and I get to the top of this hill and I've been looking down the whole time and I lift up my head and I see this like nine to 12 foot iron cross at the top of the hill. <laughs> and I just like fall down in the dust, hey? I just fall down and I just wail in the dust, just overcome by what Christ has done and by the power of that sacrifice and by his great love for us. And I think in that moment, I understood a little of the stories that we have in the scripture where people's only response to God can be for them to just fall on their face 
an awe of this love, an awe of this power, an awe of this grace, and an awe of this um, incredible being who holds everything in his hands and yet somehow cares so much about me. Um, and and um, it reminds me of, I don't know if you guys um, know the passage from Isaiah 6, but Isaiah has this encounter with God, and he too just falls in the dust. And he says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips from a nation of unclean lips. Woe is me. Have mercy on me, O God. I don't know if people have had experiences like this before, but what they ultimately are, I think it's like the realization that God is very, very big and I am very, very small. God is very, very big and I am very, very small. And, it, and it's profoundly humbling. Have people had experiences like this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, to me, man, that is part of the heart, the heart of worship. And in response to this, this moment, these 24 elders have this revelation of how good this God is and how big this God is. And what do they do? They take all their accolades, all their gold, all their silver, everything that gives them status, and they go, this is worth shit. Doesn't even matter anymore. It just doesn't matter anymore. It's incomparable in the light of the bigness of God. My achievements, my status, my reputation, I just, it just means nothing. <laughs> I remember a few years ago um, going for a walk with um, um, uh, Jesus' father-in-law, um, uh, Justin, and um, <laughs> um, um, who's also our bishop, um, and um, He's a, he's a really good mate, eh? and we've been going for this, this walk for a while. Um, and around the time um, I'd had this book come out, I was doing these podcasts that were coming out and, um, and, and speaking at some different bigger things. And um, we were walking along, and we walked for about 45 minutes an hour, and then we're just arriving back at the end of this walk, um, back at the campsite we left. And he just turns to me and just very gently says, Hey, Scotty, books and podcasts are good, eh? But Jesus is better. It's just this gentle little rebuke. Like, whatever you think you're doing, however much you think you're slaying it, wherever else you want to put your identity, mate, whatever else you want to build it on, whatever crown you want to wear, that thing is not going to be worth anything in the light and the glory and the grace of God. So take off your crown and throw it down. We need those people in our lives, eh? We need those people who love us enough to say this. In the light of God's glory, we cast down our crowns, our crowns of achievements, the crowns of our intelligence, of our careers, of our status, our success, our books, our podcasts. In worship, we realize that our little achievements and markers of success are pretty vain and pitiful next to the bigness and the grace and the glory and the love of God. And that's heavy. <laughs> Because I think as like good Protestants, good Westerners, like we really want to earn our place, eh? Like we really want to earn each breath we take on this earth. We really want to feel like we've done something to deserve what we have. You know, we, we have this kind of meritocracy, eh? Where we're like, we, we want to feel like somehow we did it. And so grace is like, a, it's not kind of good news to us sometimes because it feels like it's taking away all the hard work that we did to get here. But the good news is this, when our crowns fall from us, when our crowns fall from us, we realize that we are no more today than we were the day we were born. We realize that 
We are no more today than the day we were born. And the day we were born, we were children of God. And today we are still children of God. And whatever crown you have worn in the meantime, you started a child of God, you finish a child of God. One day when your body is broken, when no one thinks you're attractive, when nobody reads your thesis, when you have a lot less friends, when you're padding around the rest time, when you're like, gosh, I wish we could have something other than applesauce today. When no one wants to listen to your podcast or read your book, God will still be God and you will still be his child. God will still be God and you will still be his child. So the encouragement I want to bring today with that is why don't you get busy casting down your crown now before life takes it from you? Why don't you get busy now casting down your crown before life takes it from you? Because it will come and take it from you. And you have a choice to stand before the glory and the power of God and to realize that he is big and you are not. He is loving and you are not. And to throw down all of it. Or you can move forward bitter and watch life take it from you. And I don't know, I want to do that in worship. Like I actually want to surrender my crown to God. So I want to go through those three points one more time. Worship is how we dethrone Domitian and enthrone Jesus. Worship is where we replace cultural liturgies with the liturgies that reform us into the people of God. And worship is where we remember who we are in light of who God is. And we cast off our crowns. We cast off our crowns. One final um, anecdote I want to share with you before I finish up. Um, as I said at the start, the, the journey of the last couple of years has really been a deepening journey that, um, of John 1.5, that there is um, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Um, I um, yeah, went for a really, really awful relationship breakdown um, a couple of years ago. And I, um, after about three months, when I finally felt like I was okay to be alone again, I booked this hermitage way out in the back of uh, the Manawatu. Um, hermitage is like basically like a little like kind of a chapel house that is in the middle of like all bloody nowhere and you just go out there and be alone <laughs> um, it's a really good idea um, and so I go out there into this hermitage and just for about a week I just wail and I cry and I just let God have it um, <clears throat> and on this one day um, after a few days there I finally felt like the sense of like worship beginning to rise up in me again felt this um, thing within me that actually wanted to give God praise again. And as I'm praising God, I started to, um, I started to think back um, over the years and think about what had kind of happened. And I'm sure many of you can relate to looking back and going, for parts of your life, where the heck did this all go wrong? Like, what the heck happened that I ended up here? And I remember thinking about like, me coming to faith 13 or 14 as a youth group kid, you know, all the naive dreams you have about what it's going to be. And then looking... And my life, and I thought of God with me then, and I thought of God with me now, and I thought, how did I walk with you and end up here? And then I just heard these two beautiful um, words in the spirit. Just heard God say, old friend, old friend. And just gather up in those the sense that the great, powerful, and loving God that I'd followed then was still the great, powerful, and loving God that I was following today. And this is the beauty of this thing of worship, is that it makes him the center of everything. And when we put him at the center of everything, 
whatever we face becomes eclipsed in his love and his glory and his power. And so tonight, <laughs> we are going um, to stand and give God the praise that he or she deserves. Um, and, um, and we are going to dethrone the things in our life that don't belong there. We're going to put Christ back in the throne. We are going to say words which are going to aim and retrain our hearts towards the person of Jesus. Um, and, and, and I'm praying that God's love will be so apparent to you tonight and will so overtake you that whatever else you're wearing tonight, whatever accolades you want to hold on to, whatever status you feel you have, you will just think this is garbage compared to knowing Jesus. Paul actually said that, eh? He said, I consider everything, actually, the translation I've heard is basically literally shit. Everything I have is shit compared to knowing Jesus. So that's where we want to go tonight. 